Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing metabolic disorders which can manifest in the newborn period. We're recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We are joined today by Dr. Luis Umania, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Genetics and Metabolism at UT Southwestern. Hi, is this Dr. Umania? This is Dr. Umania. Yes. Hi, this is Nita. Thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. Hello. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Okay. So we can go ahead and get started. So when we talk about metabolic disorders, we're really referring to a broad and complex class of disorders, which includes defects in the metabolism and storage of carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids. These disorders are not common, occurring in about 1 in 1,500 live births, but if not diagnosed early, can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. If you've already listened to our newborn metabolic screening episode, you'll remember that phenylketonuria was the first metabolic disorder which spurred the advent of newborn screening in the 1960s. Um, This program has since expanded to include several additional disorders. In today's episode, we'll discuss the classification of these metabolic disorders, and in our next episode, Dr. Umania will join us again to discuss their management. So from my standpoint, as a general pediatrician, it can sometimes feel daunting to remember the details of all these disorders and how to tell them apart. So to start off with, Dr. Omania, please can you help us sort through the classifications of the different types of metabolic disorders? Um, so I agree with you. Um, the inborners of metabolism are quite a large group of conditions. Um, most of them are quite infrequent in the population. Um, and many of us, even for us who specialize in inborners of metabolism, keeping track of them is quite difficult. Uh, there have been different ways to try to organize them into groups. Um, most recently, in 2019, a new nosology was proposed, and it included over 1,000 well-described inborners of metabolism, and over 100 that could have a metabolic component, where, but their description was less clear. Um, when I approach a metabolic disorder, uh, there are different questions that I ask myself. The first one is, will this be a disorder that is amenable to treatment or not? Because that really will lead the urgency of um, your diagnosis. Uh, you cannot miss or delay diagnosis of those treatable disorders. If you're going to take it uh, from the clinical standpoint, uh, I think that rather than thinking first on the pathways is just grouping them into three groups. Um, The first group, what is proposed, is to be called disorders that lead to intoxication. These are disorders in which you accumulate a compound uh, or um, a chemical substance in your body which is proximal to a metabolic block. And the accumulation of this compound will lead to end organ damage, which could affect um, the brain, the heart, the kidney, via uh, multisystemic disorder. In this group is where we would have conditions such as phenylketonuria, homocysteinuria, maple syrup urine disease, uh, galactosemia, Wilson disease, porphyrias. In all of those, you are accumulating a toxin, and that's what is leading to the symptoms. And then the management is aimed at 
both getting rid of this offending compound and then limiting the amount or the rate at which your body will either take it or produce it. And this is the probably the first group of conditions that people think when they uh, are asked about involuntary of metabolism. The second group is the disorders of energy metabolism. These are disorders in which, for different reasons, there is a lack of energy supplies to the cells. So this would include disorders in which uh, glucose is not made available, uh, such as is the case of the glycogen storage diseases, the fatty acid oxidation disorders, or disorders in which there's an impairment um, in the utilization of glucose. Um, here is where you would in, uh, include uh, what is thought as the mitochondrial disorders, um, which really affect how the carboxylic acid and the respiratory chain work. Um, so the management of these disorders really is to try to improve that energy utilization or the availability of substrates for um, energy production. And then the third group is what we call the disorders of complex molecules. These are much larger molecules. These accumulate slowly over time or they become depleted slowly over time. They tend to be more uh, chronic, multisystemic. Um, very few of them will have an effective treatment just because how widespread the impact of these conditions are. And this is where you're going to see conditions such as the mucopolysaccharidosis and what we call the storage disorders, uh, the peroxisomal disorders such as Selweger, um, and another uh, newer group of conditions that we call the disorders of glycosylation, which are disorders in which the modification of proteins after they have been synthesized is impaired, and then those proteins cannot pursue their uh, options. Um, so once we think about these three groups, uh, we need to think, when is it manifesting? Because some disorders will manifest prenatally, some others will manifest in the neonatal period or infancy, and others might appear later in life, such as in childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and some disorders might not appear until you are of very advanced age. Uh, also, then, you have conditions that will have acute manifestations, uh, very common for those disorders of intoxication and energy metabolism, or being chronic or progressive, such as is the case for the complex molecules. And there are disorders that can have both acute and chronic components. One example of these are some organic acidurias in which you can have acute metabolic decompensation with severe acidosis, but in between those acute periods, even when the patient is well controlled, you can see progressive end organ damage. And many organic acidurias patients might develop cardiomyopathy or renal insufficiency or optic nerve atrophy that will happen over time. So that will also help us decide when I'm encountering a patient, where do you fit? Is this an infancy um, disorder or is this a disorder of older ages? Um, if I were to think of the most common group of disorders, those that would affect the neonatal period, um, again, most of those will be disorders of intoxication of energy metabolism. Um, and um, I would include uh, here the urea cycle disorders, the organic acidemias, 
the disorders of fatty acid oxidation, the amino acidopathies, and disorders of carbohydrate metabolism. Um, I would also think here of the glycogen storage diseases and the mitochondrial disorders. So most of the big, big two first groups that we discussed. Now, when they present, and especially newborns in whom uh, the amount of symptoms that they can exhibit is quite limited, discerning between one or the other disorder might not be easy and there's significant overlap. Uh, luckily for many of them, the treatment tend to be so similar that you can start treatment until you get all of your confirmatory labs to decide exactly what is the specific condition that you're treating. Uh, also, sometimes small pearls or clues can give you ideas about what is going on. Um, so a good exploration of the newborn, a good exploration of the biochemical patterns, even from your routine lab work, can give you a lot of information. For example, in the organic acidemias, you could have hyperammonemia and hypoglycemia. But really, is the degree of that acid-based disturbance which is so significant? While in the urea cycle defects, you still could have hyperammonemia, but this one over it's so much more significant than the acid-base disturbance. So you can see on the organic acidemias, patients with pH of 7 or 6.9 and hyperammonemia, so 400 or 600. While in the urea cycle, you will see a patient that has a pH of probably 7.48 or 7.5, but ammonia is in the 1,000 or 2,000 level. So it's a matter of picking up which of the abnormalities is the most preponderant one, what can lead you to a suspicion of where this patient is becoming sick. And again, the idea is just to try to identify those disorders that are treatable. Um, we can go and review some of the manifestations of these disorders as it happens often in the different uh, textbooks. Um, but there are different things to consider and hopefully some of these might be helpful. So let's start with the urocycle defects. These disorders, all of them are due to impairment in the detoxification of excess nitrogen, which has been released, the amino acids, uh, and it is released in the form of ammonia. What happens is that the urea cycle will conjugate this ammonia all the way into the urea, and urea will be excreted then by the kidney. It will also lead to the synthesis of both citrulline and arginine. Arginine really uh, is quite important because for patients with urea cycle defects, it becomes an essential amino acid, and it will become an important part of the treatment. Um, there's ammonia that does not get excreted as um, urea will lead to rapid neurological deterioration. So these are newborns that on day two or three of life will present with progressive lethargy, poor feeding, some vomiting. Um, and if we were to go into their system, is this ammonia permeating into the brain, causing accumulation of glutamate? Uh, sometimes you will see some excitotoxicity, and you will see uh, hyperreflexia and clonus in many of these babies. And the other thing that will happen is at the level of the CSF, the ammonia will dissociate, and it will release hydrogen which will trigger the respiratory center, uh, mimicking what the brain would feel during uh, an episode of acidosis. 
So these babies will start breathing quite fast, and this tachypnea will lead to respiratory alkalosis. Um, as the condition progresses, some patients might go into shock, and then they might develop a little degree of metabolic acidosis, but again, it's never as significant as you would see in a primary organic acidoria. Inside the neurons, it will cause, as we already mentioned about excitotoxicity, but also will affect the glia. And for them, it will cause impairment in their mitochondrial function. It will impair the functioning of uh, the pumps, and this will lead to um, brain edema, which will end up with uh, herniation, which is essentially the main cause of death for people with hyperammonemia. So our treatment really is to lower the production of ammonia and to shunt it away from the system in an alternate pathway different from the urea cycle. An important tidbit of information for them is that since the urea is not being synthesized, the BUN of these patients will be abnormally low even when they are in a crisis of hypoperfusion. So a very low BUN with high ammonia and uh, some degree of alkalosis um, should make you think that this is a urea cycle defect. Um, and again, many of the things you will not get fast, but that BUN, that ammonia, those will come fast to you. Um, the next group of conditions um, that I would like to bring up are the organic acidorias. These will also present in the neonatal period, and the manifestations will be almost identical. Um, these babies will become tachypneic these babies will have a rapid neurological deterioration with vomiting and poor feeding. And all of them are associated with a catabolism of branched-chain amino acids, which are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And these three will actually end up going the tricarboxylic acid cycle. So they will behave also in some way as an energy-deficient disorder. But it, what will happen is that these patients will accumulate this organic acid, which can come at different steps during the catabolism of these um, three amino acids. And the manifestation will include a very significant metabolic acidosis with increased anion gap. Um, and the accumulation of keto acids. And that's what can give to some of these conditions those particular smells that you read in the books. I would say, in my experience, sometimes you can feel it, not always, so the absence of smell should not rule out an organic acidemia. Also, because they affect the tricarboxylic acid, they can lead to a secondary inactivation of the urea cycle. So they, that's why they might have a degree of hyperammonemia, but still is never as severe as in a primary urea cycle defect. The most common uh, disorders in this group are propionic and methylmalonic acidemia, um, mostly undistinguishable when they present to you unless you obtain uh, follow-up labs, which mostly is organic acids in the urine that will let you know if the patient is excreting either propionic or methylmalonic acid. The next disorder is isovaleric acidemia. This one, again, same presentation, but is one that sometimes you can have one of those smells uh, sometimes um, reported as cabbage or uh, rotten cheese. Uh, it depends on really who's smelling it. And then uh, maple syrup urine disease. This one is um, the most proximal of all of the effects. It's quite severe. 
um, these patients will present with less acidosis, but they present accumulation of ketones that will give the particular smell to the urine. But I would say that more than the urine, this smell, which is kind of burn sugar, is better uh, identified in earwax of the babies. And it's easier to uh, collect earwax than urine. Um, then again, I would not base my diagnosis just if I can or can't smell it. Another important tidbit of information here is the presence of amounts of ketones. Babies are quite inefficient at making ketones compared with the amount of, that they use. So significant ketonuria in a baby that looks sick should make us think of uh, the organic acidorias. Okay. Um, we can go next to um, some of the disorders of, uh, that would be associated with hypoglycemia. Okay. In this group, we will have especially conditions that are associated with energy metabolism, but one of the conditions that is associated with toxicity, which is galactosemia, can also present with hypoglycemia. The biggest group and probably the one that we see more patients uh, associated with hypoglycemia are the fatty acid oxidation defects. And through newborn screening, we've been seeing that they are much more frequent than we thought. Among those, uh, medium chain acylcholine dehydrogenase deficiency or MCAD seems to be the most common. And one disorder for which newborn screen has proven to be quite an important tool. Before newborn screen, it was thought that 25% of the children would die or have significant neurological injury from a hypoglycemic episode. After the institution of newborn screen, that has come close to zero. In our experience, in our clinic, none of our patients has had a metabolic crisis since the newborn screen associated with this specific disorder. The manifestations for most of these fatty acid oxidation disorders will present after the baby has been fasting for a few hours. Sometimes in the most severe disorders, it could be seen shortly after birth, especially if the baby has not been breastfed or formula fed in the first few hours because the stress of um, birthing can trigger fatty acid oxidation disorder. The manifestations will be significant and rapid hypoglycemia, uh, which uh, often is uh, almost on the undetectable range. We have seen patients that come with glucoses of two or four or eight or even zeros. Um, and it will be associated also at the same time with significant liver dysfunction and in some disorders, cardiomyopathy and arrhythmia. All of these disorders respond quite well to the administration of IV glucose at a physiologic glucose infusion rate. So these babies in the NICU, they just receive glucose at glucose infusion rates of six to eight, and they respond and in a couple of days, all of the symptoms completely uh, improve. Uh, and they often don't need high glucose infusion rates. And as long as you keep the baby fed often, the metabolic pathway is not engaged in most cases and the manifestations uh, resolve. Uh, one thing is that in many of these disorders, the production of ketones is impaired. This is a little bit more significant when you see it in older kids, um, but still in babies you could see that there's very low production of ketones uh, if you were to measure them during an episode of hypoglycemia. Um, 
And then again, the main goal is to keep these babies fed on a um, routine, avoiding uh, prolonged fasting, and then the prognosis uh, improves quite markedly. The next group of conditions uh, in this same group will be the glycogen storage disorders. And I bring them up because the hypoglycemia in these patients is much earlier than in the patients with fatty acid oxidation. Um, so it happens after one or two hours after a regular fast in an older kid, but can happen after one hour or so in a newborn. And there can be a degree of acidosis, especially because these patients will develop ketones, or they might go into a period of lactic acidosis, just trying to engage other alternative pathways to generate glucose. In newborns, the hepatomegaly that is characteristic for these disorders might not be noticeable, but in older children, it will be. Another condition in many of these children is that they can become resistant to hypoglycemia. Um, so we often see babies or children aged three or four that have developmental delays and uh, hepatomegaly and um, hypotonia. And then when we start examining them or uh, the gastroenterologist perform a biopsy, we find accumulation of, glu of um, glycogen in the liver. And then if you do studies on them, you see that especially at night, they might be becoming hypoglycemic, but they don't present any symptoms. Their brain has just become used to it in the sense that they don't respond with um, sweats or nightmares or shields, but still these neurons are suffering. And that explains why they have developmental delays. Um, again, they respond quite well to glucose on physiologic gluc um, rates, so they don't need massive amounts of glucose. They do not respond to glucagon, as the main effect of this hormone is to release glucose from glycogen. In these patients, glucagon actually could worsen some of the symptoms such as the lactic acidosis. Um, and the management, again, is just frequent feeding, and sometimes we have, depending on the age, we have to add different compounds to al allow for a more continuous uh, release of glucose and avoid either storage of glycogen, so we try to avoid hypo hyperglycemia, as well as hypoglycemia, which we mentioned before, will lead to further metabolic uh, instability and neurological injury. Um, then, I would say galactosemia is the other one that pops up quite often in um, the differential for everyone. This one can present with hypoglycemia and liver dysfunction, but often jaundice is one of the bigger markers. We all have been trained in the use of urine-reducing substances to think of galactosemia. It's, it's an okay test. It's not great. It's not sensitive. It's not um, specific. So it can be positive for many reasons, uh, and it could be even negative in some patients with galactosemia. Um, so this is one for which, luckily, the newborn screen results could be available soon enough that we could intervene. Uh, for some of the other disorders, the newborn screen might come and help us specify the diagnosis, but still we would have to be working in the dark for a little bit longer. For galactosemia, usually the results can be uh, at an appropriate time, and that will allow us to prevent more serious manifestations. And you mentioned that the uh, children with galactosemia would present with jaundice. Would you expect that to be a direct or indirect, typically? 
It's often um, both. It's mixed. It's both um, conjugated and unconjugated. Um, and it can change as the liver dysfunction progresses. Okay. Um, and again, it's not a good marker. It's not that like everyone with jaundice will be. Um, I would say that it's a little bit more of the uh, conjugated one that increases. Um, but it's, it's just like with the reducing substances. Could give you an index of suspicion, but I, I would not put my uh, eggs in the basket just because of it. Okay. Um, Galactosemia tends to be quite difficult to suspect in the newborn period. And that's why I rely a lot on the newborn screen to pick it up. Um, I would say also that disorders in which the hypoglycemia tends to be resistant to management where you need to have high glucose infusion rates should make you think more of an endocrine disturbance than a primary involuntary metabolism. And that's an important question that we often have to uh, discuss with our colleagues in the NICU or in the nursery. Um, because even though many of these endo endocrine disorders have a genetic base, management might be different. What kind of endocrine disorders are you um, discussing specifically? Um, one of the common ones that we see is hyperinsulinism. Okay. You could have hyperinsulinism both from genetic uh, causes, uh, affecting some of the receptors uh, at the level of the pancreatic islet. But at the same time, in some patients, you could have a hyperinsulinism that could be triggered by immaturity. Many newborns can have a degree of hyperinsulinism, and you see that often you're pumping a lot of glucose just to keep that glucose stable, Interestingly, sometimes that sends you in a spiral because the more glucose you uh, with the patient, the more stimulated that islet will be and the more insulin it will produce. Uh, and it's a difficult one cycle to get out of because if you lower the GIR, the patient will become hypoglycemic symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, sometimes you have to do it quite slowly and might take you days or even weeks uh, to correct sometimes. Other disorders, you could see some adrenal insufficiencies. Some babies uh, could have it just for prematurity or for the need for steroids for longer periods of time. Um, hypopituitarism can also present with significant hypoglycemia uh, that could also be uh, resistant to uh, glucose infusions just because, again, the hormones are not there to lead to the incorporation of glucose into the cells. Okay. Um, going back to some of these disorders we um, think when we discuss involuntary metabolism, the next group are the amino acidopathies. The amino acidopathies behave somewhat different than the disorders that we discussed in the fact that their manifestations can um, be more chronic, such as is the case of phenylketonuria or homocysteinuria, these babies will not become sick in the nursery or the NICU, um, and they will not show any significant symptoms that you could identify, um, or nothing that will make you suspect that there's anything going on with these babies. We identify them through the newborn screen, and then they will need chronic management uh, through their life to prevent this accumulation of phenylalanine or homocysteine to have their toxic effect. One amino acidopathy that could present with a chronic, with an acute or chronic manifestations is tyrosinemia type one. 
this is one in which um, it's not the amino acid itself what is toxic, but it's actually a downstream metabolite that is called succinylacetone. Um, and that can lead to um, liver dysfunction, um, can lead to renal dysfunction, and in untreated patients will lead also to a very early um, hepatic adenocarcinoma. So patients need to start treatment before the age of six months to limit this uh, risk. Patients that have not been treated by age two have probably a 95 to 100% risk of developing adenocarcinoma liver dysfunction. Patients who are treated uh, very early in life, that risk becomes the same as on the general population. So this is one that could still be found in the NICU. Again, this is one that we could begin to suspect or we suspect through the newborn screen because it's designed to measure the levels of tyrosine. Um, and that can help us to intervene very early on into this condition. Um, so most of them, I think this about most of the common bigger groups that we think when we think of uh, inborners of metabolism. The next group are the mitochondrial disorders. This is the other one that uh, we often get inquired about and that we often get worried about for babies who are sick in any uh, setting. Could it be NICU? Many patients are in the ICU, some patients in the regular floor. Some patients might come in the clinic with uh, very unspecific symptoms. Um, they often have multisystemic involvement. Um, lactic acidosis is considered the hallmark of most of these conditions, but I have seen it absent in many cases, and it will depend on which of the specific mitochondrial pathways is affected. Um, these patients can have developmental delays, myopathy. Um, some might have mild levels of liver dysfunction or renal dysfunction. So every organ that uses a lot of energy might show you some symptoms. Sometimes um, it will be organ-specific, so in many conditions you will only have uh, neurological symptoms or myopathic symptoms or cardiac symptoms. Some will be much more extensive. And really, there's no specific markers that can allow us to detect, oh, is this A or B or C mitochondrial condition? And often we rely to do molecular analysis, which takes uh, such a significant amount of time. And the treatments are for this condition are the same as the diagnosis, tend to be more symptomatic than a specific for a specific for each pathway. Um, and prognosis is more variable. Um, and again, I think that there are the bigger groups. Um, that I would I would consider at least in in the fact that this might be the most treatable disorders. Again, we could then discuss about the complex uh, molecule disorders, especially the storage disorders. These are more chronic, so these are children that will present with symptoms that accumulate slowly over time. Some of them might have dysmorphisms, which for most metabolic disorders is not common, um, but for these specific accumulation disorders. Um, especially viseromegalies or changes in the facial appearance over time can be seen and is low neurological deterioration. Um, 
And that's low, I would put an asterisk, because as low, some patients might deteriorate in a period of one year. Some patients might take many years. Some patients already have symptoms by the time they are born. Um, but you could see that there's a progression as, as they live um, more and more. But they often don't have acute metabolic crisis um, compared with the other two groups of disorders, the accumulation of toxic compounds or the energy deficient disorders. Um, I should say that we must have inborn of metabolism in our differential, but not let them being in our differential cloud us from more common conditions. Some of the most common con uh, causes of metabolic of lactic acidosis really is hypoperfusion, uh, either from sepsis, from prematurity, um, from cardiac disease, um, and this can also lead in some cases, for example, to, to what we call secondary uh, mitochondrial injury, in which those mitochondria that were damaged during hypoxia will release some of their compounds into the bloodstream. And you could see then uh, high lactic acid or some of the compounds that over time will recover. And we see that with much more frequency than primary uh, mitochondrial disorders. Um, so more or less, that would be in a nutshell if I were trying to compile some of the most common disorders. Um, but again, it's not an, an easy task to do, and it will take a lot of kind of expertise and um, trying to pick up clues in different places. I would say the most important thing is to try to identify these babies, try to treat them. I would say most of them actually respond to what we call induction of uh, anabolism, which we can achieve by giving them IV glucose and um, getting proper labs, uh, both from your routine labs, just as bad, um, blood gases, um, comprehensive metabolic panel that would include your liver and renal function. As um, Those can give you uh, a lot of information, I would say. Uh, ammonia and lactic acid, those are two, I would say, fecal labs you need to know how to draw them and send them properly to your lab because otherwise you could get false elevations that could just derail your assessment of these babies. And, um, and for our listeners, can you just quickly tell us um, in terms of the collection for those two, just so they know what to um, expect? So often for both of those, for ammonia and lactic acid, we advise against the use of a tourniquet. Um, because that can increase the levels of both of them uh, just by either um, hemolysis or uh, the small uh, ischemia that can be led during the period of the tourniquet. Uh, also, we recommend to put those labs in ice and be taking stat to the lab. That will prevent, especially the blood cells, to continue their metabolism, which again would release them into the bloodstream and increase them because once the blood is out of your system, there's not a liver that will process those two chemicals, so they could start accumulating in a blood that has been uh, standing. Um, and that's my, often my recommendation for both of those. So free-flowing vein, preferably. Uh, a sticks are acceptable. You can do it from an arterial stick. And put on ice and taking stat to the lab. So... Many times, some of us, when we were training, we would 
goes ourselves to the lab rather than do than to rely on the two uh, systems. But in major hospitals, the tube might be faster. Um, sometimes ICUs have their own processing uh, labs in, in uh, very close, um, and I will rely on those. Um, sending patients to do it in uh, outside and outpatient labs, I often don't rely on it as much um, because there's, there's less liability uh, on the handling of that sample than what would happen in the hospital. Um, but if you have a suspicion, you can always do it. Okay. That was very helpful, um, I think, in giving us the presenting signs and manifestation of each of these classes um, and a nice way to organize them all um, in our heads. Again, like you said, in a nutshell, there's a lot more we could go into, but that was really helpful. Dr. Omania, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss about the classification of newborn metabolic disorders? Um, I would say that um, I think, again, just reinforcing, finding out what is your leading symptom. Is it hyperammonemia? Is it hypoglycemia? Is the acid-based disturbance? Or is the lactic acidosis? Can help you go into any of these groups. Uh, the newborn screen is a very important tool for you. Um, so chase those screens. They might have some answers for you. Um, at the same time, they might help you rule out things. For many of these disorders, you would not expect to have new, uh, normal newborn screens. So if they are normal, maybe you can start looking elsewhere. Um, and again, we in genetics are always open and more than happy to help you guys whenever there's any question or any concern. Um, and as I said, there's over 1,000 disorders, not, not even us know all of them. And sometimes um, finding the specific answer might not be fast. But the treatable ones are the ones that we try and we are better at identifying sooner. Okay, thank you. So this concludes part one on the classification of newborn metabolic disorders. Please join us for the next episode for part two, when Dr. Omania will return to discuss the evaluation and management of these disorders. To end today's episode, do you have any advice for our listeners while they're taking care of newborns? Um, always rely in your own exam. Um, not only what you've been told, but go and look at the baby, examine the baby, um, keep inborn-nursal metabolism in your differential, but at the same, don't let it cloud all of your other points of the differential. I often say every question should have a simple answer, and the more difficult the question, the simpler the answer should be. I like that. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Omania. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.